Welcome to Improv Beat by Beat. I'm Curtis Rutherford. I interviewed a whole bunch of different improvisers and then edited together chunks of those interviews to investigate different aspects of improv one piece at a time. This is episode 21, Best Notes, Part 2. The first Best Notes episode is one of my favorites. It feels like a good thesis of what this podcast is about. Lots of different advice from many different perspectives. There's also something about advice that great improvisers remember. It's like a built-in filter to take out the vague, crappy notes. You know, the notes that are just like, uh, do more characters. The notes people sometimes give just to fill time or to feel like they're giving notes. So that question, what are some of your favorite notes, has become one that I've continued asking each person I've interviewed. So here is Best Notes Part 2. First up is John Timothy. What is one or what are some of the best notes you remember receiving? Oh, sure. I remember, oh, burned in my brain, Neil Casey in my 201. He told me after some scene, John, you you need to stop acting like such a fucking cartoon all the time <laughs> because you'll never be funnier than a cartoon. So you should you should stop trying and you should start learning how to be like a funny human. And the world shrunk to to a small tunnel, uh, a dot of light, and uh, I, I shambled back to my seat because I very much respected him and wanted to, uh, you know, please him in every way. And uh, he was right, like, because uh, I took 201 after four or five years of, like, short form oh, okay. in high school and college. So I was like, oh, uh, I'll show these people how to do this. And everything was like, yuck, yuck, like, it was huge and nonsense. And um, I appreciate that note. I think I appreciate it at the time. But, like, it really did – it was the first time that I really started to be like, I don't even really think I understand what he's saying, but I have to push in that direction um, because uh, I, he's right. Like, I, I don't know what he wants from me, but I know he's right. Um, <clears throat> the other one was – there were a couple, like, explicitly for improv – or yeah. for comedy? or uh, Improv or comedy. Yeah, okay. sure. One was I was on a team out of my 401. And long story short, like, they they weren't great. Like, to the point where, like, I think during our first show, I had to initiate six of our eight scenes. Not because I was stepping out to, like, yeah. do it, but just because, like, ugh. No one, yeah. Um, and that develops bad habits. So eventually, in some rehearsal with them, I, I started developing this bad habit of, like, trying to correct them and trying to, like, make things how I want them because factually I wasn't wrong, but, I mean, there's as little ego as you can, but, like, factually, sure, I probably was right, but it came off as, like, judgy and it came off as, like, as, like, me trying to correct. And then I think eventually it was Eric dies, like, during some group games, like, hey, um, you weren't wrong, but, like, why didn't you make their thing work? Right. Why'd you add that other thing? Why'd you add your thing? I was like, oh because the answer was because I thought mine was funnier. Yeah. And that's the wrong answer. You know, like that's like I, was, I got caught uh, and he saw it and I thought I was being so smooth, uh, but I, I wasn't. Yeah. What else? Oh, and then I just remember Caitlin bits a guy at some point told me that thing about like that there's, there's no one whose job it is to tell you you're good enough to do the thing you want to do. And so you should just write the sketch show or put up the show or put the thing. Cause I think a lot of people, especially coming out of, especially like out of college or like, you know, even like high school are used to 
very real gates and very real, you know, like, well, I, once I accomplish this, then I will be qualified for this and I'll have this certification or something. And I think it's kind of, uh, people get whiplash kind of coming into like the real kind of, well, like, we're not rough and tumble, but kind of like very amorphous world of like comedy and like comedy achievement where it's just like, well, you just, people like a thing if you do it and it's yeah. good. So why do, so just do, do the thing. And if it's bad, well, no one will remember it. So <laughs> And uh, then you'll maybe make a better thing next time. Yeah. You know? One of the things my girlfriend will often remind me of is let them say no to you. Mm-hmm. Don't say no to yourself. Like I will constantly like, oh, I'm not going to ask this person to do the yeah. podcast. Oh, I'm not going to ask this person to do the show mm-hmm. or to do a show on the Because they're going to say no. And then almost always when I ask, everybody's so happy to be asked yeah. to do anything or to yeah. help somebody else do anything. But yeah, the impulse is like, ah, no. no, rather than just yeah. like, let me do it. And then it's on them. Yeah. If it's not the right time for this yeah, sketch exactly. show to exist in the world, right. great, then whatever. Right. Because it's like, I mean, because I get it. Like, I think it's a, it's endemic to the community because, I mean, surprisingly enough, I don't think a lot of people got into comedy because they have incredibly healthy senses of, like, self <laughs> and self-esteem. Like, you know, right. it develops as you get older, certainly, hopefully. But, like, uh, you know, it's like everyone's kind of got a little bit of a chip on their shoulder about, like, I don't want to put myself that out there. And I think the people who really succeed are people who kind of get over that or never really dealt with it, uh, you know, because they just do the thing and they yeah. ask the thing and they get the thing and they, you know, keep moving. Yeah. That was John Timothy. Just do the thing. Start working on that improv form you wanted to try out. Email that person you wanted to collaborate with. Set up the group that you wanted to make. So many people are out there waiting to be asked to do something, but not actually taking the time to ask other people to work on the projects they have in their head. The people who succeed are the people who try. They're the people who actually bother to set things up and to follow through with them. So to reiterate Caitlin's advice via John, make your thing. Do whatever it is that you've been meaning to do or to ask because there's someone out there just a bit more mediocre than you are, but who has no compunctions at all about asking for what he wants. On the other half of that, if people aren't asking you to do things, there's a good chance it has nothing to do with you. There's so few people out there doing the asking and many, many people just waiting to be asked. So it pays off to be the person doing the asking. On the one hand, it makes it more likely that people will ask you to do things down the line because they will have seen you or worked with you in something, etc. But there's no guarantee that including someone in something you're setting up will mean that person will necessarily include you in their later project later on. And it doesn't have to. But it does mean that you'll get to create the thing that you wanted to create. That feeling of not being asked to do things never really goes away. You're always going to notice what other people are getting that you're not. Nearly every performer you see, if you mention his or her accomplishments, will brush them aside by saying, Oh, sure, but I don't have this. Sure, I'm on Lloyd Night, but why aren't I on Herald Night? Sure, I'm on Herald, but why aren't I being asked to sit in on more weekend teams? Sure, I'm being asked to sit in, but why not join weekend teams? Sure, I'm on a weekend team, but why not ASCAT? Sure, I'm on ASCAT, but why aren't I being cast in this show? And so on and so on and so on. I started this podcast in part because I wasn't being asked to do the UCB long-form podcast, which I thought was a oversight on their part. I mentioned the idea for the podcast to some of the guys on Sleuth, my old Herald team, and they said, yeah, that's a great idea. Do it. Make it. And so anyways... Stop waiting to be asked and start asking. Up next is Beth Appel. 
By the way, she is going to mention a spank at one part of this. A spank is an audition show at UCB for an improv or sketch show in the hopes of getting a regular run at the theater. Here's Beth. What is one of or what are some of the best notes you you remember receiving? Well, with Harold's, Mm -hmm. I think something that was really... It sounds dumb that this was eye-opening for me, but it was, is with Harold's, the idea of starting really grounded mm-hmm. and not acting super goofy or crazy or wacky. And that, that goes along with justifying as well. So it's like, okay, so you did pull directly from the opening with that insane initiation because your group is doing an organic opening where you just, you know, run around for no reason for four minutes, but you're not going to be able to play that scene. So you have to start more grounded. Right. Starting grounded is a big thing for me. Another good note I got was from, so after I got taken off Herald Night mm. and had auditioned a couple more times and still not gotten back on, I got the note of, you're you look like you're trying to win your scenes that was the probably the best note i've gotten because in my mind that's not well obviously i'm no one goes into a scene thinking they're gonna win it but i was like i totally get how i come off that way and i get that that it was just like build your scene with your scene partner don't try to win it don't try to be like the funny part of it and that also goes into when I when I started, I was really hell bent on like, I have the idea for what the game is in this scene and we're going to play it and I'm going to force you to play it right. versus you don't know what I'm giving you. And so I need to change gears. I'm not going to win this scene. So mm-hmm. don't try to win the scene was a good one. Uh, Nate Dern told me that. And I'm trying to think if there's any other good notes that I've gotten. I have one that I just remembered that I got from Will, uh, Will Hines, which was... Again, he probably said this better, but it was something like, work on the middle of your scenes. Mm -hmm. Like, he was like, you initiate well. There's like playing. There's like, oh, there's a first couple of moves. And then my scenes were just dipping. And he was just like, it was just the analysis of you had set it up. It was fun. You were on board with your scene partner. And then it dipped. Yeah. Keep having fun with that thing. Keep like exploring that thing and, and pay attention to that middle part of scenes. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I'd only think of initiate and then find an edit and then yeah and then at some point out of in a, the future you'll end the scene yeah oh yeah another good thing was oh don't be a fun killer <laughs> i won't say who this coach was sure. did you you weren't in that rashomon group were i you? was you I were th- in rashomon i was i don't know if we were in it at the same because i replaced i think i replaced mayor i think we were in it i was in it the whole time Okay, then yeah, we definitely. I was were. a lifelong. Yes. Rational. Okay. Yes. Oh boy. Because I think I, repl- I replaced Mayor, so I was in it like up through our one spank. Yeah, which. <laughs> that's <laughs> which of course we nailed, and people are still talking about the, the Rashomon. Rashomon is still running at the theater. So, do you remember? I don't know if you were at this practice, but we were doing scenes. Mm-hmm. The coach like gave us an exercise to do. The coach we were working with at that time, he, it like he like just hung his head he like hit his forehead with his palm out of like frustration and he's like yep i wanted to see if i was right you're fun killers you're all killing the fun just do the fun thing <laughs> do you remember that Are i do you there not for remember that? that i'm gonna say that was mayor that was uh, that sounds like my mayor. <laughs> it was, <for laughs> it was sure when mayor was still on and before i, I got yeah. uh no i do not remember that but I don't doubt that I could have been that person. Yeah. And then in group scenes, good something good that I uh, one of my last Herald coaches said was just being positive. Mm. 
Just like what, find out what you like about the thing and do that instead of the negative. That was Beth Appel. Rashomon was such a fun form, and I really wish it had worked, but it always remained just a little too hard. There was always like one too many moving pieces that we let get in our way, and it kept us from just having fun and playing game. Maybe now, eight years later, I should try returning to that form and see how it goes. Anyway, up next is Ashley Ward. What's one or what are some of the best notes you remember receiving? One was... The idea that like stick with the the horse you came with, you know, like like don't like be jumping on horses the whole time. Like don't try to have like four scenes happening in one. Right. Stay on the path you're on. Right. And you're you're doing that scene. You've got your horse. It's you know what's fun you, about this. Yeah. Don't keep jumping and trying out new ones and to see like oh is this what the scene is? Is that what the scene is? Like stick to that thing and just keep doubling down. Keep heightening. Keep like escalating what's going on to make it better as opposed to like trying out other things. Cause I think that was a thing I would do a lot, which is maybe why that's my, maybe I get on people because it's like, I see myself in them. Right. <laughs> that was definitely one. The other thing that I got that was really helpful was don't try and be someone else in the sense of, I think sometimes it's helpful to like emulate if you're feeling really scared. Sometimes it's really helpful to, emulate someone and think like, you know what, I'm going to play the way Sylvia Ozil's plays. I'm going to have that kind of quiet confidence Mm -hmm. and and go after things in that way. Sometimes it's good to like take that on, but don't take on that voice. It's taking on the attitude as opposed to your own voice is valuable and good and your experiences and, and what you bring to the table is why you're important. If you're a copy of a copy, that's not going to get you very far. Right. So I think that was really, really helpful. Like, uh, you are enough was the Martin DeMott thing mm. that like, you don't need more than you. You're, you're enough to like make it good. And that was very impactful. That was Ashley. I still have a hard time with sticking to that one thing. It's very easy to see the new fun thing and to run for it. It's the same with writing. When you've revised something a hundred times and you change a joke just because it's new to you, but not because it's a funnier joke than what was originally in your script or whatever you were writing. You're just tired of the old joke because you've read it a million times. But stick with the first thing. It was funnier. Ashley also mentioned using your own voice. And for a bit more on that, here is Jake Cornell. I took a class with Keisha Zoller, which I think, like, looking back was probably where things really started to, I don't think I, I don't think I clicked in that class, and I don't think I, the notes that she gave me in that class, I applied during those eight weeks, but I think those notes were what led me to doing a lot of growth, like, in the year after, and the whole class was focused on, um, playing with honest emotion, like really having characters that felt things in scenes and cared about what was happening and were reacting with emotion. And I remember I intentionally took the class. I was, I was an intern, so I could pick which like advanced study classes I I could take. And I intentionally took that class because I could feel that I was like, not a human. Like I would go to the back line after scenes and be like, what? No one acts that way. Like, what you just did was like not human and not insane in like a comedic way. Like it truly just was like not a reality that would ever happen. Right. Um, that like improv, like, hello, daughter, how are you? Yeah. It was like all about filling the scene with like ticking the boxes and like nothing real was happening and I couldn't like break it. And so I went to that class and she, 
Keisha was so kind and patient. I remember so many times, like, I she would, like, push me, and she'd be, like, she would be like, no, that wasn't real. Like, do it again. And, like, I still couldn't get it. And I remember her just, like, very kindly looking at being being, like, almost. Like, you're getting there. But it's, like, still not happening. And I was like, fuck. And I remember, I think it might have been the last class, and this is the note I'm getting to. I was, like... I was saying, I feel, I think my, I think part of it was my 401 note had been to play more characters and I didn't know how to do that. And so I think, and I was also still trying to figure out like just how to do a scene. And I remember saying to her, like, I can't figure out how to be someone other than myself in a scene and still like act real and think and like create everything around it. And Basically, I was like, I can't do improv is like what right. I was saying. And I just, I remember, and I, I, this is probably like a very big bastardization of what she said because I've digested it for three years now and talked about it a lot. But uh, the gist of what she said, she was talking about when people do Comedia dell'arte with like mask work. And she was saying there's two kinds, there's two kinds of people with masks. There are the people who, when they put on a mask, they completely become someone else they like it like they're because their face is covered their self washes away and they are able to completely embody a new thing and then there are the people who put a mask on and that mask becomes a lens through which themselves is projected and like modifies it and and both are valid ways to play with a mask and she was like i think you might be the second where and you need to figure out how when a mask is on you can still be a human, still be yourself, but there's just a new perspective or a new twist. And that was what led me to understanding game. I was like, oh, it's not, it's just a lens that your character sees the world through that no one else is seeing the world through. And you just can't let that go. And everything else, you can talk the way I talk, you can move the way I move. And, but in doing that and realizing, I think what I didn't understand was I was so focused on finding a game or finding the unusual thing that there wasn't a scene. And therefore, there couldn't be a game because you need to have a reality. You need to have people who care about things. You need to have people reacting to then find out what is unusual. And I was so hungry for a game. I wasn't doing a scene and my characters had nothing to do. And so understanding, oh, it's about filling out the space and then just the one unusual thing. It's like it's funny because like the core curriculum focuses so hard on game. And in my experience, it's like it's 3% of the scene. It's right. the most important yeah. 3% of the scene. But it, it's it's such a small part. Like everything else needs to happen. And then like that that one little ingredient is the thing. It's like the catalyst. It's the reactor. Every mm-hmm. time you throw it in, the potion explodes. Um, but like, it was that note of like, you need to figure out how to live through these characters. And then what is just the one thing that is unusual about them and just keep, hold on to that. Mm-hmm. So then uh, in what ways do you kind of like bring that to scenes in which way, and what ways do you tell other people, like if you're coaching them or that kind of thing to do similar things? I think it's, allowing it all for me when I'm doing it 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 came from acknowledging that it was or realizing that it was not going to come from my brain it was going to come from my bones and it was going to come from my gut Mm -hmm. and then all my brain has to do is then like think what does this feel like so like making an instinctual choice when I come off the back line to hunch my shoulders a certain way or talk a certain way or react a certain way and doing that completely from the gut so that it's authentic and then the improviser in me that's had all this training to then say, okay, this, this feels like this, or this is this and help to contextualize what everything is. And then able to kind of move the scene from there. But I was trying to come up with the ideas in my brain first and then play them. Right. And I needed to make choices and then react to my own choices. You need to constantly surprising yourself and playing like a real person. Because in our Mm -hmm. day-to-day lives, we don't know what we're going to do next. We just do it. And so I had to play that way as an improviser. 
I think everything, I think the through line of all of my like learning has been more about be as present as possible in the scenes and stop trying to brainiac your way out of it. Just like live in the scenes and commit. The second that you bail and try to step out of the scene to contextualize it as like a smart improviser on stage, you're selling your, your scene partners out and you're thinning the reality for the audience. The audience is reminded that there are improvisers on stage, not a scene happening. And it there's it's such a bad instinct, but it's such a natural instinct. I wish that there was a way to address it earlier because I think I I didn't figure that out until like two and a half years in. I was like, oh, like that thing you see sometimes of someone making like a really clever observation on stage isn't actually that helpful. It yeah. might make a laugh for a second and there hasn't maybe there hasn't been a laugh in five minutes, but if there hasn't been a laugh in five minutes maybe live in the scene for two more minutes. And then at seven, the audience is fully in this world. And then when they do laugh, it's like such, it's going to be such, so much richer and it's Mm -hmm. not going to make anything harder for you down the line. Yeah. And a lot of that kind of like thinking we need to do that, I think comes from, we tend to see a lot of, a lot of improvisers for a long time, especially we're like essentially like standups. Yes. Right. And we had that kind of like, Oh, I'm a guy doing stand-up. Like, not completely, but a little bit of like, oh, something weird would happen. And I definitely do this. And I Mm -hmm. kind of push other people to do this because it's the way I see things comedically of like, comment on that. Say that. That's not the only way, though, but it tends to be that most of the way that we see on stage. Yeah. I don't think what you're doing there is necessarily bad or less valuable than other things. But I think think what the key is, is... And this is a thing I've, I I really try to call it as a coach and I really don't like. And I think it comes from Poha um, largely. But it is it is um, it is perfectly great as the straight man. Or honestly, another great note that you gave me once as a coach that I – you said it kind of offhandedly and it like cracked my brain open. Whereas there's a thing – I remember Shannon O'Neill said this once like in a, on a podcast or something that like the same words don't work for everyone. So re, like restating the same idea – as a teacher or as a coach with different vernacular can help like open it for me. And I think straight man, crazy man wasn't doing it for me. And you were one time, like think of it as actor comedian. And I was like, Oh my God. Like the crazy man is just the person who's like truly believing the thing. And the comedian is just the one that's giving the context. And I was like, Oh, that makes so much more sense. But so I think if you are the straight man or the comedian, Mm -hmm. I think it really damages the scene. If you are as the straight man, flipping the reality or giving the context something that clearly the actor crazy man didn't believe to be true that's a little you're pulling the rug out from your scene partner a little bit and you might be making something really funny but it's a lot of work to put on the crazy man then to now figure out oh that's not what i believed when i made this initial choice now i have to figure out what i believe now to make this choice true right i think if we've agreed on a reality and you as the quote-unquote straight man or the comedian are able to live just as much as an actor in that reality of that scene that we've agreed on. And in the context of that scene, tell me why is this unusual and funny? That is so valuable. Right. That is the line. I think that's what happens is they, cause they look the same. Yeah. It's the same person standing on the stage and it's the same tone of voice and it's the same line delivery. But one is, flipping our perspective on what we thought was true. And one is just confirming the reality that we've been in for a few lines. Does that make sense? Yes. (laughs) I've been waiting so long for somebody to just tell me that one of my notes was great. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, a big part of why I was thinking of it that way at the time was the like, oh, we just need to explain things to the audience. Yes. That's the goal of that like voice of reason person is just to like say like that person it seems crazy this is why that's so funny to us yes 
That was Jake Cornell. You have spent your entire life, whether you've realized it or not, developing your comedic voice. Every time you've said something funny that your friends or family have laughed at, your brain said, oh, let's keep doing that in that same way. So don't lose that just because on stage, you happen to inhabit another character for a bit. Let that character respond closer to how you would. Use your voice, whatever that voice is, on stage. It's a voice you've spent many decades developing, so don't throw it away. Up next is x Mile. What are some of the best notes you remember receiving? Oh, that's good. Sebastian Canelli cussing at me, which is so good. And we, let me be clear, he does not just go around cussing at people. Him and I had that type of relation because he can be like, X, you gotta fucking hold it. You gotta wait. You gotta fucking wait. And we talked to each other like that. So he would never like just go up to it. I don't want you guys to think like, oh yeah, that's the man who cusses. He's going around fucking cussing people. <laughs> like, he knows he can talk to me like that because that's how I receive things and I mm. want it straightforward. And, you know, you know, so if you see me, just cuss at me. <laughs> but um, Sebastian telling me to hold it to wait because when Top Heavy really started gelling and we really started being able to like, play with each other and we knew each other's strengths and we started fucking with each other and we would like come out and it, it, we just started setting up game real good I got too excited I was like oh I know what the game is mm-hmm. and so I would come out he was like hey, you gotta hold those beats you, you gotta and that's one thing with what my, my one of my gripes with the hair I was like fuck I gotta hold it for the second week mm-hmm. shit I want to take it there now, <laughs> you know? And then you, when you know you're on a team with such talented people that it's like, yeah, I have this idea, and I th- it's going to fucking kill. But as soon as I do it and then Beth comes out, it's going to be insane, mm-hmm. you know? So that was one of the best notes that I got. Matt Chap, I tell this all the time, and I'm going to say it when I get Miami. Matt Chap, first person ever, and he is improv kink. Saw him, saw him, Jewel, Frank Marasco, Bridget Holmes, single-handedly save every scene at Nurse Jam for a year and a half. Love those people. But Matt Chap, the first time that I was really myself on stage ever, when because I used to play Stepford Moms, I didn't I didn't know how much black I could give because because I would always be like Timmy, so we're gonna go to the store, we're gonna get some milk, get some cookies. But you know, my mom was like, "Look, we go in this store for fucking bacon and don't ask for nothing. You, I, I will pop your ass." Stay right by the damn the cart. Don't move. Pick up a pop tart. Pick it up. Pick it up and see what I do to you. So, you know, and I wanted to be like my mom, right. like my aunties that just be like making me like she be like here, test the apple, touch it, get the grape, rinse it off with the water, taste it. Are they good? Like how we shop in a mm-hmm. grocery store. So the first time that I really was myself in a scene, it got such a huge laugh and such a huge reaction, and I was really me. And Matt Chap, after I got off stage, it was like high. Because when you first find game as yourself, mm-hmm. not when you find game, but when you find game and you do it as you. And he's like, X, he was like, what you did tonight, do more of that. What you did, he was like, and I looked at him and like, I almost went to have tears in my eyes when he said that. He was like, you did good. You did good. And that was after like a year of jamming. And, you know, when no one ever gives you a note or no one never compliments you and then they do, it's so powerful. So that note I got for him to say, like, just, like, like be you, be yourself. Sebastian telling me to hold it. I had Antaminek one time, and that was when Terry Withers, it was so crazy. I'm going to tell you, it was so crazy. Terry Withers 
was my favorite. I literally, I, I in my head, I was like, I need to make him famous. I mm-hmm. should start, you know, telling people, like, why isn't he on the level of Will Ferrell? This man is a genius. He's so funny. And he was my favorite. And he, he was like, guys, I'm going to be missing class. And I was like, fuck this. This is stupid. Who the fuck we're going to? I don't want no fucking substitute. And so we, I go to DCM and I see Take It Personal. And that really inspired me to go forward with improv because I saw Natasha Rothwell, who is a queen. She's um, she's black, full figure like me, hair like me. And I was just like, she is insane. And Anthony and Tamanek was in that set, and he did not have a uh, lav mic. There wasn't enough. So he walks out with a handheld mic, and that's what he uses the whole set. And it was, to this day, the funniest shit I've ever seen in my life. And he kept, they, like, served him up a game where he was Oprah and he kept taking his work home. So he kept being on his mic talking to Stedman. And so I saw this man and I was mesmerized. And I, and then the next day, I was fucking pissed who we're going to get in walks in Antaminic. And I said, oh, baby, what? But he told me to, he, he felt, and during that class that I wasn't being genuine he was like do you think this is funny I was like no he was like I don't either so don't do it unlike Alex Dixon telling me she was she, she was like ex did you come on did you have a premise I was like no she's like okay go back like you know <laughs> sometimes I'm just like I want to do a scene with Tom so Tom walks, right. I'm like Tom walks out I walk out and I'm just like mm-hmm. what's gonna like, happen <laughs> I'm like, what's gonna happen? <laughs> so yeah, so those those notes, I think, yeah, some of the best notes I've ever gotten were people that were on. Oh, oh, Spo telling me she was like, X, it was really funny, but you didn't play a game. And I was like, oh, fuck, like mm-hmm. because you know I and I have to be mindful because you know this is not to be braggadocious, but I am very charming. So I have to be mindful to do the work because I could really get away with like just being charming mm-hmm. on stage and it's like and not playing game because then that's not serving the team. But I make sure to have like both, especially on top heavy. We were so fucking charming. Those are the notes that we would get. We got you too charming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, basically in a nutshell, say you're too charming because she was just like you guys had a lot of fun. It was super fun, but like we need a game in these. Yeah. And she is, like, Shannon is just laser-focused on, like, this is what the game could have been. This is the game that you guys played, if you mm-hmm. played again. Like, she knows that so well and is so good at picking that out that, yeah, she will just strip away any of the bullshit that's but she, in the way. For she messages, like, right after the show. She did beat by beat of what the fuck we did. Yeah. I was like, bitch, I don't even remember the pattern game. Yeah. No, she's Mama Bear. We love. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, any things you remember? You mentioned Terry. Any things you remember that you got from Terry? Oh, yeah. Just to, like, fuck the reference and do top of your intelligence. Oh, it's so simple, but it's just like in group games, whatever the first person does, just do that. Yeah. You forget that. I forget yeah. that. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, dude. I'm like, let me set up the place. I'm like, he got it. Okay, cool. So it's like, no, if someone's coming in and like, hee-haw, it's just you need to just hee-haw your ass. Until the motherfucking cows come on, somebody's going to say it. Somebody's going to do it. It's so just, simple. It's so simple. We, we make it hard. That was X. Speaking of Terry Withers, here is Terry. Oh, my best notes ever receiving. And do you mean in terms of, of like a note that helped me unlock something or a note that maybe I didn't want to hear but was important for me to hear and took me years to work through? Either. I think it's very important. Either is yes. fine? Okay. 
I remember very early on, I was doing a scene with my indie team, Smirk. And I remember that in that practice, I'm pretty sure, uh, I know I did the scene with Hunter. I'm pretty sure Jen was there. And I'm pretty sure Benjamin Apple was there. We were just getting going on doing sets and we would we were pausing too much. Like there was too much dead space in between in between scenes. And Kevin uh, was like, don't worry about, if you have an idea, just come out and improvise. And it was such a crazy, horrifying thought to me. And I remember that that practice, I came out and I said, I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I found myself alone in this field. And it was, it was an awful, awful initiation. But it also felt the way I want to feel now when I improvise, it felt like, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was, you know, my, my subconscious mind was doing it much more than my conscious mind. It wasn't pre-planned. And it was a great note for him to tell me that I, I need to move faster, not have a plan. I guess that's a pretty basic note, but it was a big one for me. And he also uh, suggested at the time that if I was feeling stuck in a way a good thing to do would be to adopt a physical stance that's different than the one that I, I normally uh, adopt. And that helped unlock ideas too for me. That was a pretty good note. In terms of a note that maybe I found challenging, I remember being on a team years ago that had a lot of really accomplished players on it. But we I would think it's fair to say we were maybe coming at it from slightly different philosophies and what we were trying to do. And I remember getting the note from Kevin's brother, Will, that I needed to be more patient, that I was starting scenes with people and bringing things into those scenes, probably by like the third or fourth line that would define a game, you know, and set things in stone. And a lot of times I wasn't initiating those scenes that blew my mind. It was so hard for me. It took me years to really understand that note that I was maybe ruining scenes by putting things because at the time I was like, what? why would I get that note? I'm putting funny things in my scene. Like I'm making funny mm-hmm. choices or I'm noticing something that's funny or I'm like, you know, I'm, like, I'm doing, this is like, this is funny. Why would I get a note telling me not to be funny? Right. And it was just the best note for me because I was too, I didn't have enough confidence and faith in my scene partner that everything was going to be okay, right? It took me two, three years yeah. to really process that note and then, and then realize, ah, oh, I'm ruining scenes all the time. All the time I'm ruining scenes <laughs> because I'm like, this isn't, like, I'm not, like, I, if it's not immediately clear to me what my partner's going for, I'm pushing stuff into the scenes. Mm-hmm. And that was terrible. I was a horrible improviser, <laughs> turned out, terrible at improv. And I needed to be a lot more patient and a lot more open to the scene unfolding the way it was going to unfold rather than trying to control it and, you know, guarantee some kind of home run. That three or four line cusp of a scene mm. is exactly where it happens. Yeah. Right? It's that moment of like fear of mm. we don't have a game yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's all fear-based. And that's what makes it terrible. It's all fear-based because not only am I disrespecting my scene partner and uh, th- their talent and their experience, I'm also scared and people who are watching it can see that. And that's, the I think, maybe, maybe one of the worst things to do to an improv audience is to ever – Show them that you're scared. Terrible, 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 terrible. Great note. (laughs) 
I really like, I don't know who coined this mantra, but I really like remember, don't invent. I think that that was a really, really great, a great way to think about improv. Make, make sure you bring yourself in. Don't worry about coming up with some humdinger of an idea. So what's the difference between remembering as opposed to inventing in a scene? I just, I, I just mean that like when I start a scene and I'm in a base reality, I try to bring things in from my own life instead of concocting some fantastic story that is worthy of the scene, people's attention, mm-hmm. believing that my life experiences are interesting and that I don't need more than that. So that I can be in the scene and sort of answer things quickly without being inside my head and taking a pause before I add info. Yeah. So if I, if I find myself in a tough spot where someone's asking me about why I did something that I did or where I was or um, if for some reason I need to uh, talk about what a character's backstory was, I'm probably just going to use something from my own life rather mm-hmm. than – and twist it a little bit so it fits the scene, you know? That was Terry Withers, and now here is Maritza Montañez. I'm thinking of them in chronological order, okay. uh, which is, I think in 201, Kate uh, Zielinski gave me the note, you make good moves, or like you have good ideas, uh, so just like act on them, mm-hmm. which I think was like a nice way of saying get off the back line, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it like is a recurring note, I feel, or like versions of that note have kept yeah. coming up. And then in like 401, at the end of 401, when they send you like that email that's like, here are your notes. Or I don't know if they actually still do that because now you see your notes. Oh, okay. Oh. And they did do it when I was, when I took 401. Yeah. Oh boy, changes. <laughs> but the note I got was from Ryan Carroll's and it was like, you have a good eye for the unusual thing and awareness of reality, which I liked also that he phrased it as like both of those as separate yes. things. And then think of the boldest you played in class and make that your new baseline. Right. And then he, was, he said, make your moves confidently. And I think that yeah. last one is one where I'm like, oh, that's like a recurring always note. Sure. Yeah. Uh, where if I'm like in an improv route or if I'm like, oh, I feel weird after a show, I'm like, probably I didn't make my moves confidently Uh, with both of those. I like how they were phrased in terms of the, like, this is what we're seeing that you're already doing. mm -hmm. Right. Like that's always so helpful to like hear of, Oh, I I am seeing this. I just need to do more of it. Exactly. I think with any notes, I, I feel like I want them to be actionable ideally, but there are certain notes where it's like, it's hard. Uh, I think especially if, a note is based on someone's confidence. It can yes. be really hard to give that note in a way that will be productive. And with that 401, especially, I remember feeling like at the end of 401, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'll get into advanced study because I didn't do very much in class. Right. And then, like, I think there was one class, which I think we had like a sub for it, but I remember there was one class I did basically nothing except contribute to a scene <laughs> painting. Sure. And I left and I was like crying because <laughs> so I was like, oh no, I'm definitely not going to get in and I right. don't want to spend more money right now. But it was like, oh, this is a really productive way to phrase that note. Yeah. And then a variation on that was in my first advanced study uh, Herald class, Abra Tabak gave me the note and she gave us all notes like in front of the class after having us perform sets where we were like paired with people who she saw as having similar attributes gotcha. as us. So it was like, I think our class was like a very character, high energy group, very like smart game move, right. like very game oriented group. And then my group was like, oh, very supportive group. And what happened in our Herald was that we did not do we like forgot one of our beats altogether because two of the beats were so similar. Right. <laughs> um, and her note for me was like, 
you she phrased it as like a compliment sandwich or it was like uh you're a bundle of light and you're like very fun to watch but also you yes uh your scene partners in a very supportive way without ever ending by not ending you're forcing people to do a lot of work uh to like make up for all the work you're not doing (laughs) that last part i think isn't now my paraphrasing but it was like you yes and don't and uh and i remember being like oh oh okay i see how that's happening and how that's a problem she also told me i couldn't play low status for three months (laughs) (laughs) which makes sense yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I got the same note at one point from Gillozeri of just like he made <laughs> us do scenes where it would be I should be the like low status character and I had to just constantly like you have to now take status. You are like all these other people are the president or, or like <laughs> and you are the janitor of the UN, but you have to be high status or whatever it is. Yeah, it's such a funny one because I that's like that's definitely one I still get. It's like, oh, be high status more often. And it's funny, I think anytime I've like put more pressure on myself to be high status i'll like start the scene high status and lose it so fast yeah and i i don't always know why sometimes i'm like oh do i just like not like the idea of high status people (laughs) um i think we also do come in with our own like this is my comedic take or what i think Mm -hmm. is funny and I think, like, some people think high status is funnier. Like, some people do think the, like, kind of underdog is funnier. Yeah. On my old lawyer team, Hotspur, Keaton Patty would play high status so often that we would make him the lowest status characters possible. (laughs) And he would still, like, always, like, literally one time it was, like, he, he, like, walked onto a scene and we immediately labeled him as, like, oh, well, this guy, look, he's got all his belongings in a pillowcase. <laughs> okay, sir, we don't need you. And he was, like, oh, I've got my belongings. I have the deed to the Ford Motor <laughs> Company. And he was, like, the owner of Ford. Like, just instantly high status. Just, like, you can almost see the <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. I, like, I think one, uh, this is also a note that I got, but that I think... I like to give to people too, which is if you're playing a low status character, especially if people are like uh, really dumping on them, like let them stand up for themselves. Yeah. Like uh, I think that that was one that like Amy Gorlick gave me that because I was like, oh, I think I was trying not to play high low status. Right. And so I tried to play high status, but I just, it was like something, she was like, oh, it made sense for that character to be low status. Why wasn't it? And I was like, well, I was told I shouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, and she was like, that's fine. You can be low status. But like, I think it, it's like you want the character to stand up for themselves. Yeah. And that's so fun to be like, today's the day that this character's done. <laughs> and that kind of character so fun. And <sighs> a fair amount of time, the low status character becomes kind of the voice of reason mm-hmm. to where it makes sense where that standing up also then gives more pushback against an, if the other person, the unusual thing yeah. with the, with the confidence part. So you mentioned that that is like a harder, it, it's less actionable. It is more just kind of like, well, here's an aspect of you Yeah, <laughs> change that. So how did you change that or start to like a chain, a change that in your scenes? Yeah, I think that's a good question. <laughs> um, have you changed? <laughs> I know. I think it's changed gradually and slightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think part of it has been trusting my teams, which maybe isn't like I, I would rather that it come from an internal thing. Sure. But I think a lot of the times it's just been like, oh, okay, I can make a choice because my team will support it. Yeah. And sort of trusting that. I think another thing is maybe this is another one where I 
I'm going to start with it sounding not as actionable, but like, I think trusting that like, whatever it is that I am bringing will be helpful. Like, I think I'm rarely going to come in with like a fully formed character in my head, Mm -hmm. uh, unless someone has gifted that or it was like pulled from a premise. But so sort of trusting like, oh, my honest point of view or my honest emotional reaction could be enough. And then letting yourself articulate it. Yeah. The team thing is, it's it's the baby bird being thrown out of the, out of the nest. Like you need that team to like f- have that different feeling of like, oh yeah, this is this is what it feels like to be supported, and this yeah. is what good improvisers or great improvisers feel like all the time because they're with other great improvisers. Yeah, yeah, I think it's true, and it, it's like it's funny because I think I, I've been on different teams where that manifests in different mm-hmm. ways. Uh, right now with like Party City, it's like one of the easiest ways where it's just like, oh, okay. I don't know. They're just so fun. And yeah. a lot of them are friends. So it's like, oh, uh, I definitely don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to have something weird in a scene. <laughs> like we will. Yes. Uh, so it's just like being like, oh, okay. Whatever I'm bringing will be fine and mm-hmm. plenty. Uh, we will have plenty <laughs> no matter what. And I think with other teams, it is just like, just like trusting that whatever your place on that team is will be helpful. Yeah, uh, And then I guess within a scene, it is still also trusting. Because I, I think my problem wasn't ever specifically like inventing things in a scene. But I think a lot of times you'll see that where you're watching a scene. And it's like, oh, they don't trust that there's something in it. So now you wind up with like three weird things because right. <laughs> like we have to find something. Yeah. So we have to generate it instead of noticing it. Any other notes that you remember? I, these are two different ones, but I think they're related in my head. Which one is I did like a Shannon O'Neill ASI and her note after like a specific set was like I had tried to play like a I think some sort of like big jerk in a scene and really like struggled with it like that thing where I just felt like I was sucking the air out of the scene and she was like oh uh like assholes are people too like play them like they are real people like no one who is an asshole thinks that they are an asshole Mm -hmm. like they think that they are right which I think is helpful and then I feel like variations on that that I've heard have been like Even an asshole cares about something. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't have to be the thing that's happening in the scene, but they have to care about something. Right. Uh, Which keeps those scenes from the gay, the unusual thing just being asshole. Right. It's like asshole who cares too much about blank is Mm going to be a lot more fun to play in a second beat than just like, oh, we got to see more of this fucking asshole. Yeah. Because otherwise it's like, I guess I'm just going to destroy everything. (laughs) Right. Um, Which also isn't even like, that's not the way it manifests most people (laughs) um but that was one and then a sort of flips or not flip side but like a related one was alex dixon while coaching a team i was on i think we 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 just done a scene and it was like it just didn't work for some reason but it was like not any huge thing uh, like huge obvious error it was just like Mm -hmm. why didn't this work and after she was like oh i think uh, I almost saw it in your face that like there was a moment where you realized the scene wasn't working and you shut down. And uh, and I think it was like, oh, this is something that I do ever so often. Where she was like, if a scene's going well, you like pick up steam. And if you don't feel like it's going well, you like shut down. And that's one where it was like, oh, that's a big problem. And I think <laughs> I'll, I'll notice that also with that type of character. Yeah. Where it's like, oh... I don't like this character, so I'm just shutting down on them instead of, like, doubling down and figuring out what their deal is and, like, reacting as them and stuff. You mentioned the, like, not invented thing, the, like, observed. uh, Mm -hmm. You put it a different way earlier. Was it observed? I think, uh, like, noticed. Noticed, yeah, yeah, exactly. How do you push yourself more into noticing than 
inventing? I push myself to notice things through like listening, um, which is so broad, but just, uh, I think a lot of the times if a scene's, especially if a scene's like going very quickly or somehow feels weird, just taking a second to like take stock of what has been said, because usually there's already something. And I I feel like a lot of the time we blow past lines because we're like, well, we have to get out all of the information. And sometimes I think that's like, regardless of whether it's premise or organic, it's like, we have to get out all this information. But it's like, you've already said some things that either hint at or reveal what is already true about the scene. And so I'm like, this is such a, it feels like a silly thing, but just like repeating what's been said is so important. I think even... This isn't a mono scene class, but uh, Kate Zielinski taught the before and after, which is like two mono scenes. So especially if you were in the second one, it was like, you've got to remember so much. But she used the phrase like Aaron Jacksoning, <laughs> which was if, if there's a lot going on in a scene and you just need to sort of like impose order a little bit on it, you can just in character, obviously don't break, but just in character, like kind of pause the mono scene right. and say all right, this is what's happening. And be like, you're doing this. You care about this. Yeah. What? And also the wedding's about to happen. <laughs> um, but she, which I think she used his name specifically because she was like, he's someone who's so good at doing that yeah. in a way where it's still grounded. The audience can kind of tell what's happening, but also mm-hmm. they're just like, yeah, this is great. And we don't mind that this is happening because <laughs> you need to get back on yeah. track. And that happens like in scripted things, it happens mm-hmm. all the time. Like I've been watching The Americans and there's constantly like, okay, so just to be clear, we need to get this thing so that this – like they're constantly reiterating plot points because audiences are kind of dumb sometimes. Like right. they'll forget things. All right, there's even that thing of like in a soap opera, mm-hmm. the, the first – 10 minutes of it will just be rehashing what yes. happened in the last episode, which is over the top, but like it means you can jump in without having any previous knowledge of it. Yeah. <laughs> and and you'll like in know a soap opera, on. you can go so much crazier. It's like, mm-hmm. he just fell down an elevator shaft, but he was just keeping care of that giraffe last, last episode. Like, right. And because you remember the giraffe, you're like, oh, I know the implications of this fall. Yes. <laughs> um, you can't keep care of a giraffe after an elevator no, fall. They're too tall. They're much too tall. You're not going to reach that high anymore. Yeah. But it was that thing of like, oh, give yourself permission to restate things yeah. that have been said. The audience isn't going to mind that you did that. I think sometimes it feels clunky or it feels like... I think people get like self-conscious about it. I think I had a coach. I don't remember who it was now, but someone said something along the lines of like, you don't need to do things in the cool way. Yeah. Like you don't need to be like super sly and cool delivering information. Just like get it out. Yeah. <laughs> that was Maritza. And now here is Kevin Mullaney. One of the best recent notes I've gotten was simply relax your jaw and breathe. And this is from my uh, physical theater teacher, uh, Paula Coletta. So she just seems like such a stupid, Mm -hmm. stupid thing. Like, relax your jaw and breathe. And uh, what was she getting at? When you are trying to conceal how you feel, you clench up. You close your mouth. you, you, You tense up a little bit when you're trying to conceal your emotions. And when you relax your jaw and open your mouth slightly and breathe... Uh, you're just, you, you look more vulnerable and you are slightly more vulnerable because you can't hide your emotions as much. So I had, I got this note in this class and I was yeah. just like, oh, okay, whatever. Yeah. Oh, all right. And, uh, so I started doing it whenever I didn't know what else to do. You know, uh, when I was in the middle of a scene, especially as an actor, 
And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I should be doing here. You know what, I'm just gonna breathe. I'm gonna relax my mouth, breathe, and see what happens. And I remember specifically, I was in this play, and it was a three-handed scene, and somebody was doing a monologue, and me and this other actor were watching uh, this person do a monologue. I didn't know how I felt about this, so I just relaxed my mouth and breathed. <laughs> and the other person, I don't know what they were doing, who was also watching this. And the director got on the other person's case and said, you, you have to make a choice. Like, Kevin is making a choice about how he feels watching this. And I'm like, I'm not... Re-. And I kept it to myself. Sure. I was like, yes, I'm, I'm making a brilliant choice here. And, but I wasn't really. But I use that a lot, actually, when in just situations where it's like, I just need to kind of relax in this, in this moment and sort of take in what's going on. That was Kevin, and now here is David Bluffband. This is a weird note, but I feel like it's a, it's, it's a note improvisers don't really think of very often. But you don't have to do any scene you don't want to do. Uh, <laughs> you, like, I feel like sometimes you improvisers think they, they can be pimped into games they don't want to be playing. But if you think the idea is funny, then you can have a million ways to, you know, again, it's all a pitch session. So yeah. you, if you're going to like an idea, if an idea strikes you, you're going to have a bunch of different things to say about it. And if you don't like what's happening, make it make it so that you do. Yeah. You don't you don't ever have to be forced into playing a game that you don't think is funny. Yes. You have to make it find something that you like about it that you can like contribute to it. Otherwise, it's gonna you know it's obviously it's not, it's not gonna be fun for you. In classes, I feel like that happens a lot with the like trying to make this guy is racist or this guy is sexist or homophobic mm-hmm, a game, mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. like. That's not a game. Not a game. Not unusual, Not unusual. And it's certainly not anything any of us want to play. Right. So then you don't have to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. If you don't, like, I have shows and practices that I regret, not in a a pathetic way, but just like, you know, standing up for yourself in a certain way of like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to do this because I don't think this is funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think there, obviously, you should toe the line with like how... uh, stiff you are in that in that mindset but like yeah what what do you think is funny like what because you know it's obviously a tricky thing you should uh, if if you if you if what if you like what your scene partner is giving you then that's great move uh go for it but sometimes you shouldn't play racist robot andy (laughs) exactly yeah if you if you don't want to play that yeah Uh, because i the more fun game might be why was I created to, to be racist? Why was I, I, I have been reading and learning. I, I am so conflicted. I was just like, yeah, like what well, you can really put yourself in that in that part and be like, I, I remember Chris Gethard told me that as a note of like, why did you why did you do that? It was like, I don't know. It was like, did you think it was funny? No. Then why did you do it? It was like, oh, duh. Yeah. Right. What do I think is funny? That's just like, yeah. And that's a big, and that's a big, that was a big duh moment for me. And that was like, ah, uh, I wish, I, it's such a weird thing that people like get into that mindset. And it's like, oh man, yeah. That's the best note I think I've ever gotten. That was David Bloveband. By the way, that term pimping is one that's been around for a while when you force your scene partner to do something. It's not the greatest term for, I think, fairly obvious reasons. It also doesn't really get at why gifting is good, but pimping, which can seem similar, is bad. So here is my suggestion for a term to replace pimping. Demands. You can offer a gift to your scene partner, but don't make demands of her. 
If I say you have food on your shirt, that's a gift. You can add to that in any number of ways and fold it into whatever we know about the scene and your character and expand upon what we know. But if I say, oh, you're going to eat that footlong sandwich right now, then I'm forcing you to do something. Same as if I say, sing the Star Spangled Banner or whatever. I'm making a demand. So instead, I should be offering gifts. So instead of saying pimping, I've started saying demanding. Up next is Lindsay Calloran. This is a great note or a correction or something. I don't know how to phrase it, but I still use it a lot. There was a really brief period of time before I stepped down from Torco and when Sean Diston was coaching us and I had never been coached by him before. And we did this exercise where that I love to do now, but it's where one at a time people come into like a boardroom meeting and everybody's late and they're Mm -hmm. like sorry boss I'm late because blank and you say like an insane reason why somebody might be late to something and then they react to you you land on a justification and then you enter the boardroom and once everybody's in the boardroom it just becomes like a mono scene where everybody's juggling their own game and every every reason for being late is unattached to the previous one exactly yeah they're all just like different justifications for unusual behavior Mm -hmm. I had come in and said something like, sorry, boss, I'm late. I got really, he would always tell you to like, don't pre-plan what you're going to say. Just like say something. So I was like, you know, sorry, boss, I was late. I got really into, you know, like the clouds looked really beautiful or something. And I got really lost in staring up at the sky. And through framing, we landed on this justification that was like, I like to create like narratives in my head and uh, and create, a, you know, wild stories that I think of in my head. And I live in my own like story world or whatever, something like that. And then next time I made a move it was like a wild de-heightening and not in a good way and Sean stopped the scene and he was like Lindsay what was your first move and I was like oh my first move was um you know this thing about the clouds in the sky and he was like yeah so do you feel like this move heightened from the first one and I was like no and he was like great look around the space and make a move that heightens off the first one. And I thought that was such a wonderful note of like, just remember your first move for a second. Like just he trusted me to do it too. Like he trusted me to get it, which was, I've had some coaches that like literally will tell you what to say and do, and I can't stand it. I find that so unhelpful. It's so unhelpful. And and it's, yeah, it's totally unhelpful. It's not portable. From like doing test prep, I think a lot of like, what are the things that when I'm not there telling you how to do this math problem or ha- right. this grammar problem, you're going to remember. And it's always process. Totally. And that process of, le- oh, I did something funny. Let me think of that funny thing again. I can repeat. I can. And, and knowing that like that I can do it. Yeah. Trusting that I would have the tools if he just explained to me sort of what mindset to go into. And then he trusted that I would do it myself. And then I just remember him also like joyfully laughing at that move, which right. like really made me feel like, wow, I, I got it. You know, yeah. I did it. That was a really wonderful note that I use a lot is like, are you do you think you're heightening off of that first move or do you feel like you've maybe gotten less? less specific and more broad. Um, Another one also connected to tour is um, Brandon Gardner, who was our longtime coach. This was actually came from when he was, we would teach workshops on the road. And so this was when we were doing like a practice session with Brandon about how to lead workshops. And he was like, you know, people learn better by having a good scene and feeling what it feels like to be in a good scene as opposed to finishing a bad scene and yeah. being told how it could have been better afterwards. Yeah. So this is more a note I think about it's coaching. Like a, 
I heard Kevin say the same thing, and I think it's like yeah, Kevin maybe says Amy Poehler said it. Like it, it's like definitely like one of those notes that like, comes yeah, down from this, the top. Yeah, yeah, because Kevin says something like that too. And I have found that as a coach, it can be intimidating, and that also it also connects to like being a director and um, helping to facilitate a good performance out of somebody. Is um, as a coach, it is more beneficial to coach someone into a good scene mm-hmm. through side coaching but also like hands-off side coaching, like helping them to find it themselves. They'll learn more from that as opposed to doing a a bad scene and hearing the note afterwards, which is something I don't think I totally understood until I heard that from the first time for the first time from Brandon. And it's funny now because the other day we were talking about the role of shame in note giving and that kind of thing, thinking of that note of, yeah, when you're in a bad scene, I know when I'm in a fucking bad scene. I don't need the side coach of like, this is bad. Right. It's like, yeah, dude, we fucking know. But yeah, just getting that prod and feeling that, oh, I was so close to a good scene. Right. That's what I needed. I didn't need anybody yelling at me and saying. Right. They literally only need like a push in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And and then you can trust that they're going to find it. And like, I love watching that moment so much. That was Lindsay Kellerin. About that aspect of shame in note giving, for a long while there was this idea in the culture of improv that hard notes were good notes. Some people still talk about liking hard notes or not liking hard notes. Your goal as a coach isn't to say things nicely or meanly. It's to be an outside observer. Say the things the people in the scene may not have noticed and give them the tools to deal with those situations. Telling someone that a scene was terrible isn't a note if they know the scene was terrible. Of course, if someone is doing terrible work but believes it's the best, then yeah, sure, call out the bullshit. But if people know the scene was bad, they don't need to be told that. They feel that you've been in bad scenes, you know what it's like. Don't berate them for it. Instead, Tell them the point that the scene either stopped working or could have been saved. That's what they missed. I just hate that bullshit macho idea of good notes are mean and cutting because that's not how people get better at something. You can't get better at something by being shamed into it, especially not for something tough as improv. The other part I'll say, not for coaches, but if you're on the other side, if you feel like, oh, I'm not getting the hard notes you're probably missing the notes you're getting. Whenever people ask for those like, oh, I want hard notes, I want more personal notes, those notes are already being offered after the ends of your scenes if you have a good coach or teacher or even a decent coach or teacher. Make sure you're really taking in like, what could I have done differently? What are they telling me I should have done? Make sure you're not discounting the notes they're already giving just because you're hearing it in a nicer tone of voice or anything like that. You're getting those notes. We're all constantly getting those notes. It's up to you to internalize them. Now, here is Rudy Behrens. I'm sure someone else has gotten this and mentioned it, but I tend, especially when I was starting, I tended to play straight man in every scene. And Kevin Hines gave the note of like, you know, be the straight man, but let it happen. Like, find a reason to let it happen. Even if it's as simple as, well, I do want to be cool, so, all right. Yeah. And he, after in like a couple of sessions, was like, take the candy. You're saying no to it because it's not, you don't want it, but you have to take it to let the scene move forward. Mm-hmm. That was very helpful to me. Oh, I've got um the best, like, 
kind of overall improv advice note that was like the mind blowing one. Uh, Becky Drysdale saying, listen to your scene partner like you're listening to someone you have a crush on because everything they say has so much more meaning behind it because you're trying to figure out what they mean. So if they're like, hey, see you later, like, do they want to see me later or are they like writing me off? What is it? And that was like, oh, yeah, like, don't just take the words for granted. What is the intention behind them? Uh, And what is the improviser saying to you, not just their character? But yeah, that, I mean, I think I stayed up thinking about that for days. (laughs) (laughs) Had a teacher, I don't know if I even want to name names, although it probably doesn't matter. Uh, It was Curtis Gwynn. But he was like, UCB is a school, and all a school is going to do is teach you how to be good enough at something. If you want to be great at it, you have to, like, work on that on your own. Like, we'll give you the tools to be good. Mm Mm-hmm. No one here is going to make you really great. Yeah. Because it's a school and that's what schools do. And that really resonated with me because I had just dropped out of college. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, I don't need school. Improv isn't school. Yeah. And then he was like, yes, it is. <laughs> and we talked about not worrying about the suggestion too much. I remember Curtis Gwynn being like, someone was like, but how do we make the suggestion work? And he's like, you don't. It doesn't matter. And then he like, I don't even know if this is a a great note on how to do things, but it is a great note on how to not worry about what you have to do. But he was like, give me a suggestion. And someone said like a business meeting. And then he just initiated playing golf. He's like, it's fine. doesn't matter. You know, like it made me think of something and I did it. Don't worry about doing things the right way so much. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's really hard to answer a question because you just want to say, just do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, like Ari Bukitas being like, people ask me, how do I get out of my head? I don't know. Just get the fuck out. Yeah. That's all you can do is like, just do it until you're out. Yeah. There's no like mantra or chant. I I subbed for Lloyd team a month or two ago and they were like, oh, we want to work on making more moves on the game. And I was like, great, let's do a scene. I, I'm going to let it go seven minutes. So let's see how many moves you can make on this game. And even with like walk-ons, they made like two or three in a te- in a seven-minute scene. And then so afterwards, I was like, "Wait, name a move, name a like." I just went down the line mm-hmm. and had everybody name a move. Then I went down the line again and had everybody name another move. And they all had moves. Like they're all. It's a very funny team, and they're all very good players. So they all instantly had like two or three moves at the ready. Just none of them did it. Right. It's that like how do you how do you do this thing? How do you make more moves in a scene? I don't. Know, you just do it. Go out there. Yeah, especially if that's the goal. Yeah. And sometimes it's good to be like, I know a move, but I'm going to yes. hold back because we don't need 10 moves in a three-minute scene. Exactly, but yeah. Yeah, just knowing that you have that is pretty important. Mm-hmm. Knowing that you could make a move or just being constantly thinking about it instead of thinking about, like, how do I initiate my second beat? Be like, what's going on here? What could I do? Mm-hmm. It's like... a you know, it's like better to have a move and not need it than to need <laughs> exactly. a move and not have one. That was Rudy Barons. Finally, here is Catherine Mudon. I have my like old school student journal. I wish I had brought that. Ooh. Like the old crusty one with the old like uh, student um, passes. Did you take a bunch of notes like in yes. class and that kind of thing? Yes. I wish I had. Ugh. Yeah, a friend of mine did uh, during classes and he was like the only one. And then afterwards I was like, oh yeah, why don't I do that? And then I realized... 
I can't, I, I, I'm a doodler. Like I couldn't take notes in college at all. I had to memorize things because I would just like, uh, all I have is just drawings. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yes. So it looks as though you're furiously. <laughs> <laughs> and really it's just like, I'm shading in a dragon. <laughs> and then I would go back like, I don't remember this formula. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. What are great notes I received? It's hard because I just really started out at such an excellent level. Yes. Uh, so there were so, so few. Know, and, and you don't need to listen to the garbage notes <laughs> other people are getting. Uh, I remember a 501 with Gethard where he told, this was more of a compliment than a note. Well, not so much because I wasn't, again, getting off the back line. But he said, I don't think you realize how hard you throw down. And that, like, because mm-hmm. I didn't. And it was such a, like, nice thing to hear. Not consistently by any means, but to to recognize like oh when I'm good it's good mm-hmm. uh, and so just to know like you can be good like just do it do <laughs> more yeah. of it. get out there just get out there um, what else I still have in one on one we talked about giggling and breaking have never been able to fix that I can't it's very hard I'm a it's, breaker yeah. Uh, I sometimes am too. And it's tough because the thing I, my feeling is the thing that makes us break is the thing that is making us listen and watch as an audience. Cause like I will sometimes say something and I hate this, but I will laugh at my own thing yes. because I realize I'm seeing what the audience is saying and fuck, I said, just said something funny. Yes. Or you surprise yourself or tickle yourself. It's not like, you're not no. like pleased, Yeah. but you're enjoying like yes. the, it's really... Yeah, it's or, so bad. Yeah, it is. I, it yeah, looks I, not. It doesn't look good. Yeah, not I don't have look. a good way, especially because like, yeah, I'll be like on my team now. It's like yeah, Kelsey Bailey or Nick Garcia or, or oh. anybody will like say something so funny, and I just have to like I'm going to turn towards the back wall and pretend yes. I'm looking towards the sunset for a while. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm bad at that. Yeah. When you're, like, teaching or anything like that, are there any, like, oh, this is a quote from somebody else that now I parrot or repeat (gasps) to my students? I don't repeat it, but I had an aha moment teaching 101. So when I was in 101 with Bobby Moynihan, you do that thing in the curriculum where you discuss game and then forget it. Right. You don't – we're not going to worry about it. And we had that session, and I don't think this is in the curriculum anymore or if it ever was. And this took me years. He said, you have two people facing each other, and finding game is them telling one another what is on the wall behind you. Oh. So I'm describing what you're standing in front of, you're describing what I'm standing in front of, and we're telling each other what's on that wall, and that's building the scene and finding our game together. At the time, it was like, oh, okay, (laughs) sure describing the wall but now it has like a very nice uh, clarity because you're helping you're doing things to it is essentially like gifting your scene partner yes you're building that out but also our walls have to match yeah you can't have the titanic behind you and i have a dinosaur or something like it has to be oh this is an office wall and this is an office wall but whatever yeah that's interesting and i'm not worried about this Mm -hmm. i'm figuring out your wall of like making sure that you're in a good place of like oh wow you know the sun the sun's i think there's forest fires because the sky is really bright you know what i mean like okay okay yeah uh anyway you are in front of an orange wall which made (laughs) me think of uh, a sky turned orange by forest fires okay very literal (laughs) so yeah 
Um, but I really like that a lot. I don't think that's ever been in the curriculum, has it? I don't think so, no. I like that encapsulation a lot. Mm-hmm. Any other things that you feel like you, yeah. Treating your performance as live theater and playing with, which is not our giggle fest when we improvise, but playing with a degree of integrity and uh, as a, an actual actor and committing to your character. I was in a Neil Casey class, and he said, our theater is very, this was Chelsea, the theater is very small. They will be able to smell your bullshit from a foot away. And I loved that. They, are, yeah. they were right yeah. there. They will smell your bullshit so fast. What are you doing? It's great. Yeah. It's so great. You are full of shit. I don't believe anything you're saying. I love it. It's true. Just yeah. that like hacky, winky yeah. bullshit. I'm doing improv. <laughs> yeah. My toupee. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> that was Catherine. I highly suggest taking a notebook or something other than your phone with you to class and to practice. Take some notes. Keep them somewhere safe. You're going to remember your notes better, and if you keep track of exercises and warm-ups, you're going to be able to go back to that list years from now when you're coaching or teaching and have a much bigger bag of tricks to pull from. One of the things I started doing way too late was typing up lists of exercises I had. I wish I had done it at the start, but even so, having that was really great when I started coaching because now I have basically a six-page document of exercises that I like and a whole list of all the warm-ups I've ever done. It makes it easier to just like go back and, oh, I want to work on more justification stuff? Boom. And finally, the notes that mean a lot now may also mean a lot to you in a couple months or a couple years when you're trying to get out of a rut or break to the next level. It helps you both see how far you've come and how improv is really about constant adjustment. You are never going to be completely comfortable doing improv. You're always going to find ways you can be better, which is kind of awesome. That was episode 21, Best Notes Part 2. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. And if you have any feedback for me, please send it to improv at curtisrutherford.com. Also, if you want to support me and help pay for some of the hosting costs for this podcast, you can do so via my Patreon, patreon.com slash actuallycurtis. Thank you so much to everyone who has done so. And thanks to everyone who is part of this episode. Hi, I'm John Timothy. Beth Appel. Ashley Ward. Jake Cornell. Hi, my name's X Mayo. Uh, this is Terry Withers. I'm Ritza Montanez. Kevin Mullaney. David Bloveband. I'm Lindsay Calloran. Rudy Behrens. Catherine Mudon. And I'm Curtis Rutherford. 